0: Welcome, welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Andrew Beer and I, Niels Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Andrew, it's always great to have you on. Um, this week is no different. How are you keeping? Where are we finding you today?
1: Well, thank, thank you so much, as always, for having me back on. Uh, I am I'm in the New York City area, getting ready for the holidays Uh things are mostly good uh perhaps with the exception of like a lot of people having walked into a propeller um uh about a month ago when uh, when Powell decided to uh you know sort of give some legs to the to the to the pivot or the taper trade so um uh but all, all, altogether nothing to complain about in good spirits
0: yeah no absolutely that's it's great to hear that you're doing well and uh of course i can't wait to get into our conversation today where one of the topics uh, we will discuss will be something along the lines, you know, how how bad is 2023 when it comes out uh, when it comes to CTAs, um, and uh, as you rightly alluded to, um, not least thanks to the very early Santa Claus rally in stocks and bonds we've had in the last few weeks. But as usual, before we do that, I'm also interested in hearing kind of what you've been. Paying attention to uh, maybe a little bit outside of uh, our usual um, topics um, and what you're finding interesting.
1: Well, I think you know, you know, I'm always interested in kind of just the broad industry structure and where things are changing. And I think, and we may talk about it later, but I think just this, what's happened with 60/40 portfolios and how and what that means for the for, for the wealth management industry and how that's going to change over time. And and so, you know, I've I've been focusing just on on what evolution, what progress, what democratization looks like. Um, and so not, not wildly different themes, but always every month, every quarter, I get new information, new angles, talk to more interesting people. So um, it's just been sort of a steady progress on, on that front. And perhaps you're sitting back being very sort of, um, I wouldn't say smog is
0: not the word, but happy that you didn't choose GBT to power <laughs>
1: your replication model. <laughs> So, yeah, so I mean that's you know we were we are talking briefly about about uh, artificial intelligence and I I don't know a thing about it I mean I, I can you know I've, I can barely type in questions in in Chat GPT but I, I always find it um, I did get somebody reach out to me the other day and said you know are you worried that artificial intelligence is going to ruin uh, the the managed space and I had to sort of remind him about you know machine learning and and machine learning was supposed to ruin the manager space and it worked for a period of time then it stopped working and then um and then big data and it's like oh my god we're gonna have all this data and i'm like the, the, all that means you're gonna have more crappy data like it's not it's, it's like like what is good about you know about knowing what people are tweeting about um so I, I look i'm skeptical with ai ai does seem some like it's something completely profound um and in in terms of what it's doing, but whether that translates into actionable investment ideas or creates opportunities for people who don't think like like uh, like ChatGPT, uh, will be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, and of course, I only brought this up because, I was, as I was telling you, yesterday we recorded an upcoming episode in the Galactic Macro series with, um, he must be one of the smartest people I've come across, um, and the topic is quantum mechanics, and so it couldn't be more um, topical when it comes to uh, what took place uh, over at OpenAI in the last month or so. Anyways, let's bring it back to earth and let's talk about trend-following performance before we dive into the topics. We, you and I, are recording on December 1st. And I do think it makes sense to uh, recap the month a little bit um, instead of just the last week uh, like we normally do. So in November, trend-following strategies faced a tough challenge pretty much the toughest one we've seen since the bank debacle back in March. And the performance suffered from market reversals, really across bonds and currencies in particular, as far as I can tell. Um, But also depending on the um, speed of your models, uh, maybe equities could have been a challenge. There were very few individual commodities, uh, as far as I can tell, that would have had some good trends. The rest of the commodity complex probably were pretty mixed, uh, maybe even down a little bit. And to a large extent, uh, these strong reversals were really initiated by that CPI number and some comments later on from the Federal Reserve. And of course, now the market does have very strong expectations that interest rate hikes are done and we're just sitting here waiting for the first ones um, to to show up as interest rate cuts. Um, what has been interesting and maybe we'll talk about that also uh, later today, is that CTAs and trend followers in particular seem to have been, I would say, almost perfectly negatively correlated to equities. I was counting sort of our own performance, and I think eight or nine of the month so far, we've been opposite in terms of performance to uh, uh, a long-only equity uh, index, like I think MSCI World or S&P. Um, So you could say if you just put 50-50 among sort of trend following and and long equities, um, you wouldn't have had a big down year last year in your uh, portfolio. Uh, You wouldn't have had a strong up year this this year. It would have been kind of pretty flat in both years. Um, So um, kind of a little bit of a benefit of what they call return stacking, which incidentally is something we're also going to talk about today. Andrew. So I'm trying to get it all lined up for you here, (laughs) uh, as you can tell. (laughs) Um, All all, all lined up in a row. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. My own trend barometer finished at 43, which might actually suggest that, oh, not a big deal, a little bit negative month. uh, But actually it recovered pretty strongly the last couple of days. And that's why I think when we see the final numbers, uh, they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to be too bad, but they're not going to be pretty either. Um, as of the 29th of November, the BTOP50 was down 2.63%, down 84 basis points for the year, so no big deal. SockGen CTA index down 3.32% for the month and down 259 uh, for the year. No big deal in my opinion. The trend index down 4.67 and down 3.65 for the year. Again, not a big uh, number, and the short-term traders index did a little bit better, down about one percent for the month and down 2.28 percent. But of course, it was an incredibly strong month for equities and bonds. Uh, MSCI World up nine and a quarter in November, up 16.17 for the year. A World Government Bond Index up 3%. I think that's like the best single months in, I don't know, how many uh, years? More than a decade, perhaps. And the S&P 500 up 9.13%, uh, and that makes it up 20.8% so far um, this year. Now, of course, when people hear about uh, how well equities are doing, we shouldn't forget that there is something called the Magnificent Seven. And as far as I can tell, if you pull out, The magnificent seven from uh, these performance numbers, uh, equity returns in the S and P comes down to a much more reasonable level of around eight percent or so. Nevertheless, we can't do that. Of course, they are included. Andrew. You very kindly sent over uh, some very interesting topics and highly relevant for, as we get closer to the end of the year, uh, your first topic, um, I think, is good to to talk about because uh, you you kind of just wrote, you know, so just how bad is 2023 for Managed Futures, question mark. Um, Do you want to dive into that and we'll take it from there?
1: Sure. Well, so one of the things I think obviously the big difference between between twenty twenty-three, right? So if the so the Soxian CTA index is, as you say, is probably going to be down, you know, two to three ish or something by the time we get to get through the end of this month, which is, is no big deal. It was up twenty percent last year. Underneath the surface, the thing that I think is really interesting is that trend is underperforming. Um, and that if you look at the five largest managed futures mutual funds in the US, you know, so that's Abbey, Pimco, Man AHL, Alpha Simplex, and uh, the Low Core Macro Fund—they're down on average five point six percent. And and what happened is those funds basically—you know—when we started looking at at this space back in two thousand fifteen, and you asked a typical allocator, you know, what do you think about managed futures? Well, everyone knew that it was it had trend and it had non-trend underlying strategies, but the non-trend stuff was the popular stuff back then. You know that that Winton had made this very public pivot away from, uh, away from trend and there was sort of belief that trend was getting commoditized and therefore people should do, you know, the, the big boy should focus on non-trend strategies. And, um, then in March of 2020, you know, something unexpected happened, which was the Sockjet CTA index was flattish or something. And when equities went down a lot, but trend went up five, six, or you guys went up more, you think you guys were up nine or something. So all of a sudden guys who were trend guys did really well in March, 2020, they tended to outperform that year. And so, and then they outperformed in in um, in twenty twenty two as well. So there was this period of time. As I was talking to people over the past several years, it's all been about trend. You know, trends the place to be. Trends the place to be. But if you look at the Sockjet CTA index and you assume that the trend guys, on average, are let's say down five or six, and the SockGen CTA index is down two or three, it means the, the non trend guys are probably flattish or doing better. And so, what I've noticed in conversations recently is this kind of pivot of people saying. Uh, like uh like Graham, John Hancock has a, a mutual fund managed by Graham in the US. All of a sudden people are talking about that because they're up a little bit. Um uh in Europe it's the it's the, it's the same kind of thing. So I think there is I think, you know, what's hard about this year is that we're supposed to be in a bad year, we're supposed to be hovering around cash. Right. So we're we're all supposed to be up four-ish this year, if but but instead we're down, you know, whatever. Um uh we're down mid single digits or or in some cases greater. And so the the sort of the idea that we've been waiting for our cash returns to be higher is sort of undercut this year by the fact that the dollar, the percentage losses on the futures contracts have have, have been quite bad because it has been a really really nasty year from a whipsawing perspective, and uh, you know I mean, it's a lot to talk about, but but um, but I think I think it's been a tough year.
0: Yeah, let me let me let me query something, um, and maybe I misunderstood it or misheard it. I understood you from saying that the SockGen... CTA index, not to be confused with the trend index. Only had a few big trend followers in there, but when I look at the the index, I would say it's actually predominantly trend followers even in that index as well. There are a few, like Quest maybe, Crable, of course. I don't see many other um, that are kind of what I would define as non-trend. So how... So how how do you so so did I misunderstand? Oh or? yeah,
1: so and, and maybe I didn't speak clearly. So okay. so so the way Stockgen says it, we got twenty guys, right, and we're going to label ten ten of them trend and ten of them non-trend. Okay. The reality is, it's like a it's like an overlapping Venn diagram, right? There are, I mean, it's hard as you say, it's hard to find a guy there. I mean, maybe you had four to his counter trend, or some you know, maybe you have some somebody's doing something materially different, but but clearly the main driver of the stock gen CTA index overall returns is trend. And if you look at the trend sub index versus it, it's like a 1.2 version of the stock gen CTA index. Um, so no, rather what I'm saying is just from, from an investor perspective, right? Investors themselves and what they, when they say I want managed futures, what do they say that they want? Um, and I've just, I've noticed this sort of evolution that a year ago, I would say people would, people would say to us if you're if you're picking up on the trend an underlying trend we want that whereas in recent months it's been more of well what are the limitations of long term trend why don't you have a lot of short term trend stuff why don't you do why don't you do things that are again focusing on other parts of it and i think that's just recency bias in terms yeah. of what they're looking for yeah i mean
0: what's interesting what's always been interesting to me because i i there's been so many periods where Trend has been out of favor compared to other things, and um, it you know it's always some if, if there's something new, it's always the new shiny tool that uh, p- gets people's attention, and they think it must be better because it's new. And I do remember when um, the short-term uh, traders started to uh, emerge, probably around year 2000, I would imagine. Uh, not many of them, and and a few more has come since. And I think the short-term traders index goes back to around 2009. But from memory, and uh, I wasn't, um, I wasn't uh, sure that we were talking about this today, but from memory, even if you've all adjusted the short-term uh, strategies have not done uh, as well as uh, you know trend following, it'll be different. So it, that warrants some allocation maybe to uh, other types of strategies. But the other thing I just want to say, which I find interesting, and that is that even within the short-term space, you can certainly find managers that actually include trend following in their model. And I don't mean short-term trend following, I mean longer-term trend following, um, but they're still labeled as a short-term trader because they have other vol breakout type strategies as well. So it is quite, I mean, I don't envy investors trying to figure out exactly how to classify some of these uh, strategies, certainly not without a very detailed conversation uh, with the manager
1: right well i i think that's where you know when i look at it from a due diligence perspective it's it's and thinking about if i were picking managers and investing them <clears throat> it's really hard in this space because people talk about um like again i mean i'm just re- relaying a conversation when winton said that they had basically turned away from trend i spoke to a guy there and he said yeah we used to consider ourselves 65% trend now we're 35% trend right it was it was still there but the marketing positioning was that it did somehow become far less important what they were doing. And and they have have very good reasons for doing that in in the context of the competitive landscape. Um, You know, I'm really fascinated with this issue now of, because when I hear people talking about like, this fund has, uses a lot of short-term models, um, one of the truisms I think this space is, is that people have coalesced around steadier longer term models because when you do look at them over a period of time, they tend to have done a lot better. And so so we run our own models internally. We don't invest in them. But just to kind of get a get a favor and it's a sanity check, when you're replicating, you kind of want to see what 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 different models are doing. And we see the shorter term models generating much lower sharp ratios over time. And and we actually don't see them controlling risk better than the longer-term models. And so so the appeal of the shorter term model is this myth of nimbleness that, that, ah, oh, in March, right? And, and in a couple of weeks after we hit the propeller with SVB in March, there were guys who pivoted out of their positions faster. They had better marches than everybody else. And all they could talk about were, was, and, and those are the ones you hear from as an alligator. You know, somebody doesn't say, yeah, I was holding onto those, my short treasury positions with a white knuckle grip through not just SVB, but the regional banks, and then, and then Credit Suisse, you hear about the guys who, when something worked. But then if you look at a lot of those guys over the next several months, rates rebounded, right? Holding onto those positions through that volatility was actually a much better position to be in over the next several months. Um, and so I think the hard part is, is when you look at something like short term, it sounds so appealing. Of course, I want to get in earlier and I want to get out earlier and I want to capitalize on that sort of thing but the problem is that you also get whipsawed an awful lot more and and so when you look at the drawdowns of the shorter term models at least as, as we see it yes you don't get hit maybe in the same way that you do on that three or f- like like for instance I mean, you know when we look at short term models in November we see them cutting risk pretty quickly and and therefore not having Maybe having half the drawdowns or less than half the drawdowns of a of a long-term model last month, um, but when the shorter-term models do badly, it's because they get whipsawed back and forth, back and forth, back and forth over six months or eight months, and that results in kind of the same kind of drawdown. So I think I think the point is that you know there are different ways of skinning this, but but the starting assumption that we figured out a necessarily better way to do this, we just haven't seen evidence that there is one particular way that's going to work better in all sorts of different market environments.
0: Yeah, no, I th- I think that that uh, that that's definitely fair. Uh, and to be fair, because I remember we had this conversation last time, I just want to remind people that when I spoke with Winton earlier this year, they of course don't see themselves as having turned away from trend per se during that period. Um, just just to for the for the record, uh, people can go and listen to Simon uh, talk about how they uh, uh, interpret that um, situation. Anyways. Um, this brings us to replication to some extent. And I'm curious, before we dive into uh, more on the replication side, is there such a thing? You 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 say you, we look at shorter-term models. And by the way, actually at, at the firm I work for, we do run a trend-following sort of basic model. Uh, and the only thing we change is the look-back period to, to visualize how the performance um if, if the only change is, is a look-back period, um, how it changes over time. And uh, and it is exactly as you say, that there will be times. There will be 2008, there will be a 2014, there will be a 2022, where clearly short-term did super well, but so did every, everything else. And then there will be a few years where, yeah, short-term uh, maybe did better than than longer-term. But it is far, far, far less consistent. Um, uh, that that is there's no doubt uh, about that. So I completely agree with that. Um, anyways, what I wanted to ask you before we dive into maybe... Maybe you can talk a little bit about the history of, of replication uh, for those who are, are new to this. But in replication, if you look at the replication model, could, could you even... Is there such a thing as a time frame, a look-back period when you do replication where you actually... Where you have to make a call saying... And I don't know if that's a discretionary decision or how you do it, where you say, yeah, 65 days seems to be how we can cl- get closest to, to uh, the index. Um, sure.
1: Yeah. So, so the history of repli- so replication started. So the, the, the whole history of replication starts in two different areas back in 2006, 2007. Um, the, the area that we started, there was a professor at MIT named Andrew Lowe, who was one of the sort of gods of academic research on hedge funds. And he was also founder of Alpha Simplex. And he um, wrote a paper with a graduate student named uh, Jesmita Hasantovich that basically applied a risk model to the broad hedge fund industry. And, and the thing you have to understand, this is, two, this is August 2006, um, I think it was published. It certainly went the first time that I read it. And I think what you have to understand is that is that the, the hedge fund industry in the 2000s was starting to institutionalize. And when asset, when strategies institutionalize, it's not Bill Ackman going out and trying to convince pension funds to have this in their portfolios. It's consultants who, for their own reasons, you know, have seen hedge funds preserve capital through the dot-com crisis. They've made a major pivot into emerging markets. They're having a great first five or six years. And so it's consultants competing with each other to get that new mandate who then pitch their sophistication in this new strategy. Oh yeah, the other ninety-five percent is easy. The other ninety percent is easy, but we're experts in this particular area, and we're going to help bring bring you access to it. So, hedge funds, private equity, private credit, etc. It's all driven by people at the allocation level, and they are not the guys who are actually running the hedge fund. So they have to create their own stories as to why they should be in a portfolio. And the story around hedge funds was, you know, if you were talking to a real hedge fund manager at the time, they're like, whatever, let them say it. It doesn't mean it's true. Um, so. Hedge funds are these nimble guys who are going to sidestep. They're going to see the train coming down the track and jump off the tracks. And, and, you know, they make all this money from identifying these idiosyncratic opportunities on the short side. And, you know, it was all of these, these stories that institutional allocators and fund of funds had created to convince people that hedge funds had not had a great several years out of luck, but was this, this thing that's going to do this talented thing of these all-stars who's going to make money over the next several decades. So, so, and, and that's how the hedge fund industry basically went from being a cottage industry to being this multi-trillion dollar industry. Now, the um, thing about it, what replication did was it basically shone a light on the fact that a lot of that was nonsense. So, you know, guys said, well, we only pick the top quartile managers. If you could pick in advance the top 20 or 25% of hedge funds every year, you're up 30% a year. It's like saying we only pick the stocks that go up. Uh, hedge funds weren't that nimble. In fact, they were making kind of, you know, cross equity long short, they're making these multi-year trades. So, so this paper comes out and guys who were who knew hedge funds were looking at it and basically saying, of course it makes sense, right? And, and what the paper was saying was that it's not that big of a mystery how the broad hedge fund industry makes money. If they're long value and short growth on average going into the dot-com crisis, they're going to do great. If they're long emerging markets in 2003, 2004, 2005, they're going to do great. If they are, you know, if some of them have are long subprime, so replication was pointing out that which hedge fund managers actually knew, but it turned out it was it completely undermined the story of what it was about hedge funds because consultants and others would say, oh, we don't pick the average hedge fund, we only pick the best ones, etc. So, um, so Lowe writes this paper and then. Uh, Alpha Simplex, Goldman Sachs re- does the research, uh, Merrill Lynch, Credit Suisse, anybody with a decent risk model in there. And then and that, that's when I got interested in the business because I thought if you could solve this, then you could create the SPY, the GSCI of the hedge fund industry. What I totally underestimated was how much the people who were in the business of selecting hedge funds who actually controlled the capital and created these narratives – would hate replication, because it was like this, this simple cheap thing that was coming along and ruining the party of we're going to help you get into this exclusive club with only the guys who are you know tomorrow's all stars. So this so that's sort of what we call top down replication. It's what we do and we stuck with it because it's the only it's the best thing we found basically if you want index like exposure to a hedge fund category. It works only in two limited circumstances, which is. Kind of figuring out what the broad hedge fund industry is doing, what equity long short is doing, kind of these kind of where these slow moving factor trades are going to drive performance over time. And we think it works very well in managed futures as well, but you have to do it on, on a shorter term basis. So the whole idea of it is we're not, we're not going to invest in hedge funds. We're not going to try to be better than the hedge funds themselves. We just try to figure out what they're doing in there, what are the biggest trades and copy it cheaply? And then you keep adjusting it over time. So, you know, you thought they were in this a month ago or a week ago, and as they change, you try to change. The other second kind, kind of the the, um, of hedge fund replication, was pioneered, I think, by Cliff Asnes. And he wrote a paper in 2006, I think it was 2006, called An Alternative Future Part Two. And he was basically addressing the whole idea of what do we mean by beta and what do we mean by alpha. And and the concepts of alpha and beta were very, um, among most allocators, are very rudimentary. You know, alpha is this magical mystery thing that geniuses do, and that generates find opportunities that nobody else can find. And beta is the simple stuff. And what he basically said, no, it's a lot more nuanced. That you can look at a particular strategy, and like merger arbitrage, and maybe you should think about whether you need to pay a lot of different guys two and twenty to get exposure to that, if when you look at them in aggregate, maybe you're better off just buying, every time somebody says they're going to buy a stock, you buy it and you short the acquirer. And so that was called the alternative, it eventually became called the alternative risk premium space. And so it really was, in a sense, a form of replication, but it was a more, they called it sort of bottom-up replication. And, And those have been the two principal ways that people have sought to take this thing that hedge funds do, this value that they create. but yet, by disintermediating the hedge fund structure, which itself is very expensive, illiquid, et cetera, this was the idea was this may allow us then to bring some of the good things of hedge funds, but deliver it with lower fees, daily liquidity, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, the alternatives premium space took off like weeds in the 2010s. I, it disappointing to what I think is a staggering degree a lot of the funds that were doing it have kind of gone away or they pivot or change what they do. But, um, but those were kind of the two, that's kind of the historical perspective on it if anybody comes in and tells you that they're doing these things.
0: You, it, when you explain it like that, it, it, it reminds me of a conversation I listened to not long ago where I think you were talking with uh, Corey Hofstein. I, I can't remember if it was his podcast or, um, yeah, I think it was his podcast. And, yep. and then uh, was it Adam uh, you had uh, on the other side? Right.
1: Yeah. yeah from from Resolve yeah they're, exactly, they're, they're yeah. partners in launching ETFs in the US Exactly yeah.
0: exactly so um can you talk a little bit so so when i hear the this history um clearly there's a starting point then um i think you guys really kind of it's the next phase where you, you come in and you say well we can do this and successfully you raise a billion dollars in no time and uh, uh, and, and and then has that has spurred even more interest, I think. And now we've seen uh, the the resolve guys come in with a, a different approach to this. So can we talk a little bit about uh, the advantages, disadvantages uh, on that? And then I'm going to take it to another level after that.
1: Yeah, so he, yeah, so Corey was very graciously invited me to join him on his his podcast and, and we talked about this. So Corey and Adam, uh, they say both work, both are valuable. Let's do both. So, so to so to, to, to take the AQR model, um, and it basically is to and to apply it to managed futures is to say we are going to build a simple and straightforward trend following model that you know we think is representative of the overall space and we think it's going to roughly approximate the returns of the overall space over time. That is a perfectly legitimate approach, right? This is what this is what banks were doing in the mid 2010s uh, I think it's, you know, if you looked at sort of what a GSA or something was doing, it seemed like it was sort of, again, a similar idea. So I basically laid out how we approach it. And and we're very unusual in quant land in that our goal is to get to the simplest, most straightforward answer we can get to, um, even if it's sexy, If if it's not sexy and it's boring and feels too simple. When... Quants in general have done things in the replication space. There's this kind of gray area, right? You've got like in theory, perfect replication would be everybody emails me all their positions in the morning and we simply invest in those positions at exactly the same weights. And we track the stock CTA index at a hundred, you know, with a hundred percent correlation and we cut out fees and etc. Obviously that's not happening. Um, so the reason we do what we do and what we do is every week, we basically look at the past Few weeks of the broad industry, and try to infer, you know, are these guys still short treasuries, and if so, how do we think it's distributed across the curve? Do we think they are, um, you know, broadly short equities, and if so, are there geographical biases to it? So we're trying to come up with like 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 the really big underlying things, and then we rebalance it once a week. The reason we went down that path is because uh, we think the industry changes over time. And as the industry changes and evolves, as long as we're just looking back at recent history, we will change and evolve with it. So if people decide, if we build a model today, and it turns out that everybody loves crypto in three years, right, in theory, we now then wouldn't have to go in three years and say, oh, well, we thought the world was this, and this was our basic way of approaching it, and now we're going to add something to it. So so the, the, the basic idea of saying we're going to build a simple trend-falling model is a very, very, very static approach. At a point in time, you say... This is what we think is most representative. This is the right window length. These are the right instruments. Um, and we're going to implement that the same way and do our rebalancings once a month, et cetera. So half of Corey's portfolio does that and half of it does what we do. Uh, there is a, another ETF out there run by a very good firm called Mount Lucas, which is 100% the latter approach. And so all of them can work our view was basically that when you build your own trend follow like product, like if I look at the the run the things that we run internally, you can go through, depending about how you specify the parameters, you can go through big, dispar- big disparities in performance relative to what everybody else is doing over time. So if people decide that in this world that they're shortening their window lengths, they're shortening things, they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think our approach is going to be better at adapting to that than if we had decided five or six years ago. Like, So for instance, if we back in 2015 had said, we're just going to use kind of a 200-day model or something, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, you wouldn't be talking to us because our underperformance relative to the index would have been very, very large. Um, But in recent years, we would have been heroes because it's actually, that's one of the best window lengths that's worked. So it's really just try to, it's trying to balance between coming up with something that is stable that you don't have to change versus something that is kind of dynamic and adapts over time. And, um, and so they both have their, and when people ask me about it in the US ETS, like they, both, they both have their merits. Not, you can't say that one is definitely going to work. I mean, Mount Lucas's has been working much better than us in 2022 and this year because some of the constraints and decisions that they make made have been really helpful. You know, if we had been if we had been doing this, and they've been doing it back in two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, eighteen, we would have looked really good relative to them. So this, so none of these things is a perfect solution, but they can. But they're yet another tool that we can offer to investors. So intelligent investors can make their own decision as to how do how much do I want to allocate in this particular way.
0: But the, this is very interesting to me, and I'm kind of just really trying to to think out loud here because I think that I mean. Clearly, the, the your part of the industry is growing. There are more There are more choices today, and part of, I guess, one of the reasons why part of your marketing pitch uh, would have would have been in the past um, this thing about well, you should pick us because then you don't have to pick a manager because one manager can be great one year but he can be underperforming the next year. But the more of these replicators that come out you could say you kind of end up in the same situation because as you alluded to before there's going to be periods where one replicator is doing better than the other so you end up in the same situation that you don't know if you're picking the right one that actually wasn't my question this is just something i thought of when you when when you said that but the other thing that i guess has happened is that because of your success and I don't think it's it's for me. It's not just the fact that it's a replicator. It's actually also the wrapping, the ETF wrapping. Uh, as far as I can understand, as a non-US person, makes things a lot easier for US investors. And I think that makes total sense. As, and and as as you uh, have heard me say many times, Andrew. Uh, although I disagree on many things um, in terms of replication versus <laughs> versus the real thing. And, and yet
1: you still invite me back. And you're yet I still invite man. you back uh, and,
0: and, and loving it, of course. Um, I do think that you're doing a great service um, to people who are not able to invest in the big um, managers and so on and so forth, uh, you know, at great fees. But what's happened with your success, I guess, is that you've also kind of stirred and woken the lion a little bit, because now we're seeing the entrance of, quote-unquote, the real thing, the managers coming into the ETF space saying, well, hang on, you don't need to have a watered-down replicator in the ETF space. You can now have, for some, okay, it's not the full diversified portfolio, but for others, our friends like Jerry, it is. So... I'm just curious how you see this landscape, if we stay within the wrapper now, just the ETF landscape and the opportunities in that. Is it, I, I mean, I kind of a little bit to uh, think about this in, in vis-a-vis the, the, um, <laughs> the low-cost airlines, when they came uh, on and, and what they were certainly competing on price, it didn't necessarily mean that everyone got lifted, right? It kind of you feel sometimes when you go on a, on a flight, um, you feel, well... It wasn't quite as good as it used to be, but how how do you see the competition that is coming along, and how would that change your space, your playground?
1: Sure. So I, I mean, you start off by saying that 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 there's going to be dispersion in replication products, and I completely agree, right? And so so if you look at going back to that twenty year history of or eighteen year, nineteen year history at this point of of, of replication. Um, there have been people, really, really smart people who have done really dumb things on the replication side. And it, it is, you can screw it up by getting cute. Um, and you can screw it up with getting more complex. We just happen to have not screwed it up because I, if we can do it with 10 positions, we're not going to do it with 11. Like, it's just, it's kind of like, it's, and that's, you know, when I tell people about what we do, I said, you know, the measure of success is that we started doing this in July, 2016. And we haven't changed a thing and we've outperformed 90% of the, of the constituents of the SOC CTA index net of fees on a risk-adjusted basis since then, right? You want to have a conversation with us in 10 years and us, us to say, we still didn't change a thing. Okay, so that and, – and I think that actually interestingly lines up with the core ethos of some people who are believers in long-term trend following, for instance, that if – if your job becomes deciding that this month I'm going to do 50 days and that I'm going to dial it up to 150 days, and that it's a very, very different value proposition, as you and I have talked about, it's a belief that there's a a that this is a there's a distortion in the markets that that at at and that there's an opportunity to deliver truly valuable diversification benefits through a strategy, and we're confident in it because it's stable and it's worked over time. We don't have to keep reinventing what we're doing. The 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 problem with what happened with the alternative risk premium space was that people would come out and they would say, We back tested it for seventy years and it's got a sharp ratio of one point two, and then it's a year later it's been terrible. And they're like, Never mind, we've backtested tested a new one. It's got a new 70-year track record and it's got a sharp ratio of one point two. And and it just and there's there's a paradox in it. You either how can you tell me that it worked for seventy years and then it stopped working in the year seventy-one, and then you tell me that you found a new one? Right. So and and that's that's sort of the collective insanity of a lot of academic finance is to, is you say something's worked for 70 years and therefore it's going to work for 70 years. Then three years later, you're coming up with a new thing because that one didn't work. Um, so On the ETF side, I am extremely enthusiastic that AHL is in the space, although I think they're in the space. I don't know them other than I know people on other sides of the business, not this side of the business. I think they're stepping in with one foot because they're not sure what's going to happen in this space. Um, I think that they've created an ETF that is a bit of a wild animal. It's a 15 vol trend following ETF that came out of, the, out of the gate. It was a rocket ship on the way up. It's come back down from them. And I think they're doing it because they don't want to compete for very good commercial reasons. They don't want to compete head on with what they're doing in their, their flagship mutual fund and certainly don't want to be competing with their hedge funds. But I think they feel that, that and look, maybe they've heard me proselytizing about it, I think, this, I think the ETF space could be a $100 billion space. It's less than $2 billion right now because we're solving something that's never been solved in an ETF wrapper, which is to have something that actually brings demonstrable diversification value to the rest of your portfolio. You know, you made this point about being inversely correlated with stocks and bonds. We run an ETF that's had negative correlation to, um, to stocks and bonds. And before this past month, I haven't run, rerun the numbers. It was doing a thousand basis points of alpha per annum relative to the S&P 500 because it was making money when you needed it the most. And it's available in an ETF. That's a paradigm shift. That's why the ETF that we run is the largest manager's ETF in the world. It's actually the largest alternative ETF in the world, because it's, it's, it's the one thing where you can say, I need it in an ETF and it's as good or better than those hedge funds that I would invest in if I was at a pension plan. Now, the reality, though, as I've learned in my 17 years of doing this, is that if I'm sitting in, if I were sitting, if my job was working at one of those pension funds picking managers, I'm picking Man-HL because, because it's the obvious choice for me. If I'm at a wealth management firm where I have a revenue-sharing arrangement with, with, with Man or another hedge fund firm, I'm probably putting it into the hedge fund firm. Like this is this is this is a a business with a lot of different principal agent issues in terms of how how uh, alligators react. Um, so I think I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be this growing recognition that futures is one of the few things you can make work well in an ETF, and you'll have a lot of new entrants that'll come into it where they're going to be stepping in, but try to tr- make sure they don't kind of cannibalize the good stuff that they have going on, but but want to have it. And that will lead to more education about it. MANHL has a phenomenal video that they've put out talking about trend following and the value of trend following and it's for general audiences. That will help with the whole education process because right now we're somewhere between one and two basis points of the entire ETF world. It's crazy. you know. So let's assume that you're right that there will be um
0: a, you know great success in this uh, space. Um you've kind of disrupted uh you could say our industry a little bit. I wouldn't say you were the first because there were other low fee products out there beforehand, but but getting more attention and 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 uh, raising more assets to this to the space, obviously other products that had low fees uh have completely imploded in terms of AUM. So it's not like I think the overall AUM has been growing. It's just been moving around. Um, But anyways, what if with more people coming in, perhaps more money will overall, uh, the pie will grow. Do you think the industry will continue to push price? Meaning, how cheap can it get? How cheap should it get? Is it because it's already being commoditized to to some extent. Um, so how low will you go, Andrew, so to speak?
1: Well, we're, I mean, the ETFs that we manage is 85 basis points, and I do get these and people may, on so Twitter. I, can yeah. I
0: sorry, interrupt you there? Yeah. Because there's one question that I've, I've been dying to ask you for a couple of years, and I've, okay. I forget, I forget <laughs> every time. I forget every time. But you may know this. So I see these numbers being listed as you list 85 basis points for 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 that uh, and others you, you know, 95 whatever but underneath the hood there are other things such as and correct me if I'm wrong here this is purely from from memory there is like an um like an can I call it an offshore entity that's sitting somewhere in SPV or something like that and uh, you know I know from from our experience that these are not cheap to run it's not like they're free to run. So does the when people say, oh, it's 85 basis points, is that just the headline number, or does it really cover all the cost of all the small nitty-gritty stuff that that goes into to the f- to make it work?
1: A hundred percent of everything. There's there's no and, and that's that's look, I like ETFs for that reason, right? They call it a unitary fee structure. If if we had additional costs that we were flowing through, we would have to show it. There are ETFs that have that have what are called acquired fund expenses. So the um but going back to the fee question managed futures is not going to five basis points like 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 etfs like long only etfs there are two things to note about that the first is the real disruptors in managed futures in the mutual fund space were aqr and alpha simplex that around 2010 they both launched the, the these are great hedge fund firms that launched mutual funds without, um, with, with by themselves. And, and I think AQR originally offered it at 121 basis points and you, but you had to like meet a five, million, like some big minimum to get into it or something. But, but basically, you know, that was probably a third of the average managed futures mutual fund at the time. And so people ask with, you know, your 85 basis points, when are you going to five basis points? The other side of it is, that's it's an absurd question, right? In that, The thing you have to understand about how strange the asset management industry is, okay, and this is going to be a little bit of a wonky discussion about competitive dynamics in industries. In free market theory, when an industry evolves, more and more of the spoils of the industry go to the consumers, not the producers. Because as it becomes more commoditized, it's more and more people compete on price and they have fewer features to differentiate. So you, you mentioned airlines, right? The extreme is the airline industry where more than 100% of the benefits of that have gone to c- customers over time because of this weird thing. They've got these gigantic things they have to fill up and huge fixed costs. Pharmaceutical business, when academics look at it, they say 30% of the value. We think about this as a crazy high margin business. 30% of the value stays with producers. 70% goes to consumers. Asset management is bizarre because if you start with the assumption with the data that basically, on average, active management has destroyed value in equities and bonds over 70 years, then every dollar, more than every dollar that of, of revenue that's been generated has gone to the producers, not to the consumers, right? And so what happened was when Vanguard, what made Vanguard so disruptive is into this historically extraordinarily profitable business enter somebody who says we're essentially going to function as a nonprofit. The more people who buy our products, the cheaper we'll make it the next one. And so there, there is no other industry like that. So, so you have Vanguard basically leading the charge every time, every dollar they grow, they cut everybody else's fees, right? So in a sense, it's now it's like the consumers actually own Vanguard because it's a mutual company. Then you have BlackRock jumps into it and they want to compete for market share. So they, go, they, they do this race to the bottom. So there's this bifurcation in the industry between the really simple stuff is effectively going to zero. S&P 500 ETFs, the you know, easy corporate body ETFs, all that stuff is going to zero. But now the next wave is active things like J.P. Morgan's active ETF products, buffered ETFs, all these other things. There's no price pressure on those because they're adding they're adding a different kind of value and you don't have a Vanguard doing it. If Vanguard turned their attention to managed futures and bought DBMF and put $20 billion into it and dropped the expense ratio to six basis points, then the industry would have a brawl. <laughs> We're, 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 we're trying to profit-maximize as, as much as anybody else, just in a, in a slightly different uh, payoff profile. If, if they did
0: that, Andrew, do you think you might have to go from 10 to 11 markets in your replicator? <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> just to get a bit of liquidity, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, interesting. This is uh, I mean, It's going to be fascinating to follow this. Um, I think it's way too early to declare a winner. But I definitely see uh, the, uh, the challenges uh, for, on both sides. And, um, and, of course, from my perspective, I think it always comes down to uh, net performance. I mean, renaissance technologies didn't become successful from having the lowest fee structure, let's put it that way. Um, so um, people will have to judge um, at the can end I, of the I, day. Sorry,
1: yeah? can, I, can, I, can I add one point on it? Well, of course. Well, just, yeah, so, so one of the things that I think is the, the, the great underestimated risk for a typical allocator to manage futures is single manager risk, right? That, that an intelligent, because we all agree that there's dispersion, right? We don't know who's gonna be the winner next month. And so if you want the space as an allocator, by definition, you should invest in more than one fund, right? You don't invest in emerging markets and pick one stock or one country, right? So just to give you some statistics, the, the, the top, the six largest managed futures funds uh, mutual funds five years ago uh, had about $12.6 billion in AUMs, of which $7.6 was AQR. Okay. You add on Alpha Simplex, which was the number two player, between the two of them, they're 85% or two, two, two funds are 85% of the, of, of the six largest mutual funds. Since then, the entire space, those six guys have gone from 126 only to 14.9. SOCGEN CTA index has gone up 38% over that period of time and AUMs have only grown 18%. So, net of performance, money has left those top six managers, but the composition of it is what's fascinating. Abby has gone from 750 million to 2.6 billion. Pimco's gone from 500 million to well 3.4 billion at the end of uh, October, I don't know where they were end of end of November. Manage L has gone from 900 million to 3.2 billion. Alpha Simplex went from 2.2 down to 1.4, up to 3.6, back down to, and now they're at 2.5 today. And then a low core fund has gone from 560 million to 1.7 billion, while AQR has gone from 7, 7.6 billion to 1.5. And and what, the reason I, I highlight that is it shows that if you're thinking, law, like the people that we think of as the obvious answers today. The, the two plus billion dollar funds who dominate this industry were not the obvious choices five years ago. They feel like obvious choices today. But every one of these guys had a much better than expected March of 2020, had a much better than it, the index 2020. And so what happens is in this space broadly, the money flows into the guy who did, re- who did well recently. And then it's subject to the risk that performance reverts to the mean, and most of those guys, with the exception of AQR, ironically, who lost all those assets, are underperforming the s and CTA index this year. So the reason I say this because it just it just highlights this is the struggle. This is much more than fees of this fund or that fund. Is how do you get diversification so that you don't have to be re-underwriting the space every year or two? And 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 if there's one thing that we add, I think it's that. And you know, again, compared to to you know, like the is, is that we're trying to we're trying to help people to get diversified exposure, but do it synth- synthetically so it's efficient.
0: No, and I get that. I mean, it's a great pitch for for replicators to say, "Yeah, you don't need to worry about man- single manager risk." I understand that. I get that. Just from reacting to to that, I would say. The numbers you, uh, you mentioned, it's interesting. I don't know always, just my own experience in the last uh, 30 plus years doing this, I don't know that always that performance is the what drives asset flows, interestingly enough. I don't think that necessarily always the best managers have the most assets and vice versa. So I'm not entirely sure. I mean, l- l- let me give you an example. One of the trend followers that has been around for a long time, and I'm sure there are more of them, had massive changes, massive drops in AUM uh, in the period 2000 to 2007, 2008. Why? Mainly because of the composition of their clients, not because of their performance. But a lot of these managers who've been around for a long while time, they were exposed to wirehouses. That was the source of their assets. And wirehouses, their products were not very good. They were way too expensive. Blah blah blah. So it wasn't really because the managers did poorly. There were other things that changed the AUM. And I'm not saying this is the case uh, in your example. I'm just saying that. To me, it's not as it's not as simple as as just saying, well, you know, you have a a, a great manager, he's going to attract all the assets, but next year no, You
1: no, you need you need an army, right? Exactly. It's, not, it's yeah. right. I mean, and you can have. I mean, look. I mean, I think there was a post on Mulvaney the other day, right? I mean, the the guy should have all the assets in the industry with those numbers, right? <laughs> but but he's whether he's making a decision not to take in a zillion dollars of assets because he wants it to to, to remain smaller, nimble. No, it's it's but but, but the industry is built. the asset manager industry is built to sell things that are doing well, right and and my point is that it's not an accident that that you have there are oh, I funds, agree with that. I agree there, with there, that there, yeah, they' the funds with large sure, sure. Uh, there are funds with large armies of marketing distribution yeah. that didn't grow because they didn't have good numbers. But what happens is when you are running an army of distributors and you have a guy, you have a fund that's done well. It's like five-year-olds playing soccer, right? They All you, all of your salespeople are going to chase it because that's how they can get made. That, that's how they can make money. But from an allocator side, the thing you have to understand is they get bombarded with people who are trying to pitch them on funds. Nobody is pitching them on funds that are not doing well. And if you're part of a big fund complex and you've got two funds that are doing well and two that are doing terribly, no one's hearing about the two that are doing terribly unless they're already invested and in calling to complain about it. So so the industry, this industry is built to push products in that window of period of time when you've had some period of outperformance, then you go out and you push it, you say it's skill, it's not luck, it's going to, it's, you know, there's something we've discovered, some magic formula that nobody else has. And so it's that combination. And when you layer on top of it in terms of the incentives of alligators are often to pick the fund that... Makes them look the best in front of their investment committee. That gives them the most comfort that they can't get fired if something goes wrong with it. That they, um, uh, you know, sometimes there are economic sharing arrangements that that influence how people make decisions. So there are a million different things that go into it. All I'm saying is that in this space, when you think about um, the challenges that people have faced, at least from from the people that I talk to, who who you know, when people would sigh, a rel- breathe a sigh of relief when they would hear about our ETF. It's because they had bought somebody that they were convinced was unbeatable in 2018. Two years later, it turned out not to be true. They were doing the process again, and then they're doing the process again. And it was just this exhausting, repetitive process. That's not, my my point is, that's just not an effective way to have this as a 10-year allocation, because by that time, you probably didn't have it in 2022 or even 2021 when it would have been great.
0: I guess the same could be said about your side of the industry, meaning replicators wouldn't have done great either, meaning because the index didn't do well, right? I mean, everybody was tired of hearing about a CTA at the end of 2019 or 20. So there weren't any, you know, there weren't a lot of interest. And if if, if you look at your growth in your AUM, it came, as far as I recall, during the year of the strong performance, not before the strong oh. performance so yeah. i th- i think in in a, i think i think that and and i guess you you also i mean the the uh, the not you specifically but but the um, the replicators are also like we are to some extent when we when we attract clients client through platforms whether it's a usage platform or whether it's this you're always beholden to someone else right because you're not allowed to market it directly to certain investors and so on and so forth um, so i do think you touch on a on a on a on a real issue because you're absolutely right that it's not always necessarily the best product or the best strategy that is being promoted because it's driven by other incentives. I think that's a big issue. Uh, what well, I, I think,
1: like I think I've, tr- I've I think I've tried harder than anybody I know to understand the buyer base, um, and I know in five minutes if somebody's going to like what we do. Um, and 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 the point that you're raising, and this is we have a lot of internal debates on this. Uh, there are people who, and you and I have talked about this and I've talked about it with Alan as well, There, are, we know that there are people who are not going to like what we do for whatever reasons. Um, and And that often has to do with what their job title is, what they have told their investors about their value proposition is, what their relationship is with their clients, what kind of clients they have, all these other things. We're not, so I think people view us as this competitive threat. I'm not walking into an institution and saying, you know, we think we're better than MANAHL and Man is incredible, right? They do this forever. they this and they have more resources, more teams. It is totally rational. And they they have great products. Rather, we're we're basically saying, let's try to understand that seven trillion dollars of capital that has never spent three minutes trying to understand this space because they've never had a way of getting access to it. And 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 let me be the one to try to explain to them not, you know, the configuration of our model and what's better than anything else, but what the experience is of having something that's up north of 20% in a year when both stocks are d- and bonds are down. And and then also to coach them through what's going to be the experience in a month like November when everything else in your portfolio is up and we're down. and And how do you running your business manage that? You know, how do you... Coach your clients that they should expect this to be in your portfolio today and in, in 20 years, you know, or or, or or 10 years. And that's that's the education part of it that I just think this I think this business has been lacking because the you know, when you when you talk about the fact that the industry hasn't really grown, a lot of the people who own Managers mutual funds today, they're the same guys who owned it five years ago. You don't have to convince those guys. To include a portion of managed futures, the battle becomes which one you should include. Should you pick Abby and rely on their diversification, or do you think, you know, Pimco is going to have another great year like they had in twenty or twenty one? Um, you know, do you? And, and and it's it's there is such heterogeneity of the investor base that that I think the challenge is to try to you know really take the time to try to understand how they think and what what is it in the strategy that would make their lives better. And increasing a sharp ratio from 0.4 to 0.43 over 20 years does not matter to 99.9% of of alligators. It's the experience of owning this thing and having it at the right time and not getting dragged into endless debates when it struggles like it's gonna do. Speaking about
0: struggles, before we uh, wrap up, um 60-40 60/40 portfolio struggled last year, as we've uh, kind of alluded to. This year, not so much. Was last year just a fluke, Andrew? Or
1: well, so I th- so I think as a general rule, whenever I post anything on Twitter, you should trade against it, because because <laughs> I I wrote I wrote something called the Great 60/40 head fake <laughs> toward the end of October, and. What I was describing was so. First of all, I don't think it's a fluke. Um, I think I think, and, but I, I would cut. Co- I think the most likely outcome is stock and bond correlations are going to remain positive uh, over the next decade. Uh, how do I get there? One is they are usually positive. It has only been in a few particularly weird periods, particularly when interest rates have been rock bottom, that they tend that the correlation tends to go to go negative. Um, now. I would caution that by saying, I have no confidence in that anybody has a clue of what the world is going to look like in a year. Uh, you know, we talked about AI. We all may be slaves to some master AI machine in in a year, for all for, for all I know. You know, we could have World War III on our hands. But and so I think the range of outcomes is really wide. You know, we could be back to deflation and and cutting interest rates in two years. It's been that crazy. But I think the base case scenario is now is that interest rates, the structural things that kept inflation very very low most of them have gone away. The world has changed. We're going to have inflation. It may not be two, it may not be seven, but something that's going to be a little bit higher. And in general, that usually means stocks and bond correlations uh, are going to be positive. The implication of that is a little bit subtle though, because the point of diversification is you're not supposed to be thrilled at any moment in time, right? There are always things in your portfolio that you're supposed to love and you're always supposed to hate the fact that you had too much in, in things that aren't working at the same time. And so... What happened is that in the 2010s, um, and by the way, it's on our website if you want to see the the great 60-40 head fake, and you can timestamp it as to the moment that 60-40 took off again. But but basically, three things happened in the 2010s. One is the returns on both stocks and bonds were, were great, relatively speaking. Two, the volatility on both was incredibly low. And three, you had an inverse correlation. So if you just said, I'm going to do the simplest 60-40 portfolio in the 2010s, your Sharpe ratio was north of one for most of it. That's, you outperformed 98.7% of hedge funds over the decade. Um, it was, and, but, but what happened, and this is where I get always interested in the, in the collateral implications of it, is it was its own bubble in that by the end of the decade, people were pitching, it, it looked so easy. They're pitching, you know, robo-advisors are saying, we're going to give you five ETFs and that's going to serve you for the next 20 years. And and the wealth management business grew up around this idea of, as long as you've got some stocks and bonds, you're basically going to be hedged. The diversifiers that people picked were not really diversifiers. If you're diversifying from equities into private equity, you're going a little bit in one direction. If you're going from private credits, you know, from bonds to private credit, you're going a little bit, but basically over the past 20 years your diversifiers are either correlated to bonds or either correlated to stocks. And when they weren't moving in tandem, you felt like everything was working. The problem is everything goes up and down. So in, in, uh, in November, everything goes up and people celebrate and do massive victory laps. But remember in October, November, everything went down. And so if that world continues, it causes a rethinking at the advisor, at the allocator level as to, hey, my, my job is to give people a smooth ride. I'm I'm not supposed to have everything go up or down, so I need things that actually have no correlation to either stocks or bonds. And if you invest in ETFs, if you invest in mutual funds, I can't think of a better strategy that has a lower correlation to stocks or bonds than managed futures that actually works in those vehicles. So I'm gonna keep bringing, I'm gonna keep waving this this flag in that. Yes, it worked in November, but it's a it's a structural problem that people have to figure out and deal with. And if and if if I'm right in that, in five years from now, portfolios that have no most portfolios that have no managed futures exposure today will start dipping their toe in the managed teachers pond. It's be, it'll be because you've heard this constant drumbeat of how the core tenet of diversification, in the wealth management industry, is no longer working. So what else can we do? And and that that plus good products like in the ETF space. Is what what would cause manufacturers broadly to go mainstream in the same way that private credit, or private equity, even junk bonds and other things have gone over time. That's my bet. We'll see. You know, I'll will die with that sword in my hand.
0: <laughs> yes, and and I think uh, I, you know I'm I, I hope you're right. Although the thought of it becoming mainstream is a little bit scary. I kind of like it to be not mainstream. I know. Um, <laughs> I know. But <laughs> anyways, that's my. But you know.
1: I mean, there and there is always this question about like, if everybody's doing it, does it go away? Um, And I think you know, I think that's one of the great because you know when I started in the hedge fund industry, I went to work for this great hedge fund manager, and he had six hundred million, and it was huge. You know, it's one of the top ten largest hedge funds. And I left several years later; it was a billion eight. He thought it was too big, and then you know, roll forward ten or fifteen years, and he's got thirty billion. Um, And and clearly, like you know, size is often the enemy of performance in a strategy. Um, My argument on managed futures, though, is that. We're not trading against each other. It's not. We're not. We're not fighting to see who gets into a short position the ten year first. There's a lot of like zero hedge and other stuff have this sort of nonsense about, you know, a thirty billion dollar flip in S and P positions is somehow going to cause some major moves in the markets. The markets are are much too big for that. And the um, instead, what we're doing is we're trading against. The entire asset management world, the entire wealth management world, the entire institutional consulting world, which has built portfolios that by design are not nimble. And as we talked about short-term versus long-term, sometimes it's great to be nimble. Sometimes it's, it's great not to have to retract reports where you confidently claimed interest rates were going to stay at 1% for the next decade. Um, and, and so, so the, the absence of memory of this strategy plus nimbleness means... You can get knocked around in, in, in a year like this, but every now and then you're going to have a year like 2020 where you deliver a decade of alpha. And so, how do you get people, how do you get this into the portfolios, into people's portfolios and coach them on how to have it so they have it in 2022 and they have it in 2025 or 27 or whatever the next year is? And you structure it in a way so you don't, you know, you, 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 you try to, uh, uh, you know, be able to make enough money for them between now and then that they, that they remain invested.
0: I think we found one other little small area where I may disagree with you because I, as much as I would like to think that there could be a lot of money um, managed in the industry overall, I think that's probably true, a lot more. But I do think on a single manager basis, I mean, every time a manager kind of stops producing the returns they have in the past, to me, it just seems like, well, just look at the AUM. And and, I, and so so there's there's this weird balancing act between still, in my opinion, single manager AUM and 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 returns. Um, and of course, some of it we know will come from slippage and market impact and and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, when I
1: when I started a commodity business right back in the early two thousands, I mean, you could make fifty percent a year with a small amount of capital. And you go 10X the capital and you're at that point, I mean, the market opportunity was significant enough. You could still make like 10 15, 20%. But there's no question that that increasing size and greater uh, AUMs, you know, kills. Like when I was at 600 million, I could focus on trades where I would find something that was at 10% or 20% of what it was worth. It would take me six months to do it. I'd put $3 million to work and it was still worthwhile. You can't do that, even when you're at a billion or a billion eight. Um, so, part of our design, from a replication perspective, is that we think that those, the risk of crowding, goes up. As I saw in the commodity space, goes up the the farther you go from the biggest, and deepest, and most liquid instruments. So, I'm not worried about crowding in the ten-year treasury, the two-year sure. treasury, euro, etc. I would be more worried about crowding in heating oil. You yeah. know, and I think I think what you're going to see with when world class firms more world class firms launch etf based products the big difference is you have to you have to disclose your positions every day and having been having seen people absolutely i mean they love front running other people more than anything else in the commodity business having seen that in the 2000s uh, i mean i think deutsche bank somebody at deutsche bank told me their most profitable area were the guys who were front running their own index relievers so, so <laughs> like, like like i mean People are going to do this. Um, I, the, the ETFs that come to market are going to be very sensitive to that because because a big player in this space is not going to want somebody saying, hey, this looks a lot like their mutual fund and their hedge fund, and that has $9 billion in it. And hey, when I do my bag, and they seem to love heating oil, and it looks like they're, you know, 37% of, of trading volume in that market. Um, so I think it'll it'll come in with a somewhat different flavor. But to me, what 2022 showed was that you know when the waves are big, it, it plays out across lots of different markets at the same time. You can get you can you can make money being short the ten year treasury or being short thirty two different you know rates futures contracts. Um, uh, so I don't know. I so I think it's I think all these things it'll evolve, but I'm not worried about I, when I think about this basic idea that 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 people have told their clients that even when the world changes. They're going to take their time, and they're going to watch it until it's completely and utterly obvious that the world has changed before they make any meaningful shifts in what they're doing. That's a golden opportunity if you're nimble.
0: You know, I'm not worried about that uh, issue either, uh, but that's for 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 the reason that um, even with all the evidence we have today, um, there's still a lot of challenges for people to embrace this strategy, as of course they should. Um, so, but. Um, Anyways, a few more. Well,
1: that's that's a point we agree on.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the point we do agree on. <laughs> fair, fair. So uh, so let let's 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 uh, finish we, we, we on like a high Dubai note, even if we want to grow it at different rates. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Let's finish on a high note here, Andrew. Yep. Anyways, uh, fun as usual, insightful as usual. Um, really appreciate you bringing along these topics. Uh, they are definitely worthwhile um, talking about. Uh, and I have a feeling that when we come to our big grand year end. All eight co-hosts and myself on one podcast coming up in the last couple of weeks of the year. Uh, I have a feeling replication might be one of the topics we're going to touch on and uh, see what comes of it. But maybe we'll find other ways to to talk about it and dissect I'll, I'll, it. I'll
1: wear, I'll, wear, I'll wear my crash helmet.
0: I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, we were talking about before we pressed record. It could be fun if we kind of swap role that I had to defend replication. You had to defend single manager. Um, but... We'll find something fun to do. Um, So, as a little teaser, if you have some interesting topics that you think would be fun for all of us to debate, and of course, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge with all nine of us uh, in one call uh, or on one recording, but we'll do our best. But if there's something that really stands out in the suggestions we get, uh, I will be sure to bring it up um, with uh, my wonderful uh, co-host as we record it in about 10 12 days time. Um Andrew, I uh, wish you uh, well, I wish you a uh, happy weekend and uh, a good start to the month of uh, Christmas, I guess.
1: Thank you and here's and here's to uh, uh, let's 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 hope for a nice big reversal. Good let's get back to what we were doing a couple of months ago. <laughs> <laughs> so well, depending you so much, on your depending on. on your
0: model speed, Andrew, be <laughs> careful true. what
1: you wish for. <laughs> well, I know what I'm wishing for right now. <laughs> okay, <so. laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Right. Um,
0: anyways, if you like these conversations, um, we could always use a few extra uh, reviews and ratings and shares. So uh, please um, head over to uh, toptradersunblocked.com where you can find instructions of how to do that. Next week, I am joined by Rich. That's going to be fun. Uh, I'll be recording that um, very remotely, so to speak, on the other side of the Atlantic. I hope it all goes well. And um, no doubt, it's going to be another masterclass uh, in maybe some more hardcore trend-following uh, topics. So make sure you also send in your to- your questions uh, for Rich uh, to info at blog.com. From Andrew and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.